Do you have what it takes to defeat the Empire's insidious Dark Trooper? Well, let's find out with Dark Forces this week on the Upper Memory Block Podcast. So what shall it be? Do you join the unity or do you die here? Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode number 40 of the Upper Memory Block podcast. As always, I'm your host, Joe, and we are back once again, as we always do, uh, to talk about a game from the DOS and pre-Windows XP era. I'm really happy to be here. Uh, show got delayed one week. I'm actually uh, in the midst of painting my house. My father's in from uh, from Montreal for a couple of weeks, and we're basically blitzing the whole house, painting it, so uh, I'm actually... I was able to clear out a little space in uh, in my usual, uh, I guess this is our third smallest bedroom, which kind of doubles as an office slash my, uh, my little recording studio. And uh, it's also doubling as the room where we're putting all of our junk while we paint the house. And uh, so I was able to clear out a little space on the desk to kind of set up my, my MacBook and my iPad and my microphone here and, um, you know, do what I got to do. So uh, hopefully everything still sounds okay and... Uh, the, the acoustics of the room haven't changed because it's filled with garbage now. It's not garbage. It's good stuff from the rest of the house. Anyways, uh, so yeah, that's that's what's been going on here. It's It's been quite busy, you know, still going to work and doing all of those things in addition to painting the house. And, uh, you know, it's cold now. It's, it's, it's definitely autumn. It's actually snowing ever so slightly outside today, which uh, the skier in me is, uh, is very ecstatic about. But... Uh, Aside from that, we got a really big show this week. I'm really excited to get to it, so let's get on with the news. Now, since uh, since we haven't had a show for three weeks, I feel like I already talked about this, but looking back through the show notes, it seems as though I didn't. I think this piece of news actually came out the day after I released uh, the last show on Populous. So, back on October 22nd, which is indeed the day after I released the last show, uh, Damon Sly and a team of developers launched a Kickstarter to resurrect Sly's 1990 hit combat flight sim, Red Baron, which I did a show about, I think, back in maybe episode 10 or something like that. It was uh, way long time ago. But uh, they are trying to, to recreate the game and uh, kind of recapture the balance between playability and realism that they achieved back in the original while adding in very cool kind of modern graphics and multiplayer action and uh, even a MOBA element uh, element to the game now sadly this campaign has kind of stalled out they were trying to raise two hundred fifty thousand dollars, and uh they haven't even made it to 40 and there's only 10 days left uh so if you go and look at the kickstarter campaign the last update uh i believe might even by be by damon sly himself and uh he's posted that they are in fact kind of abandoning the campaign uh, they're going to go back they're going to retool and uh in the future they're going to relaunch it now the cool thing about this uh, about this project is this isn't just a, a pie in the sky kind of idea. They already have a game engine designed. Uh, they they already have kind of an early alpha version that's playable. So I'm pretty sure we haven't seen the last of uh, of this uh, reborn version of Red Baron. I truly hope, as as a big Red Baron fan, that they can succeed in uh, in getting this game to market. Next, uh, you may remember me talking a bit about War for the Overworld in the past. Uh, that's the, the Peter Molyneux-approved spiritual successor to Dungeon Keeper. 
Well, Rock Paper Shotgun has done uh, a very interesting uh, compare and contrast review of uh, the original Dungeon Keeper versus War for the Overworld. The reviewer doesn't really love uh, War for the War for the Overworld in its current form on Steam Early Access, but being that this is an early access game, they're in alpha, all that stuff, I will continue keeping an eye on it as a development progresses and i will link that rock paper shotgun article in the uh, in the show notes next another retro revival kickstarter campaign is in the works uh this very recently came out trilobite games has launched a kickstarter for a game known as the collector which is the third game in the seventh guest series uh, this campaign is only three days old as of today, and uh, last I checked earlier in the day, they've collected just over $50,000 of their $435,000 goal. I haven't checked Kick Track to see if that puts them on track to funding or not, but if you are a 7th Guest fan, definitely go and check this one out. I will post, as always, the Kickstarter page in the show notes. Finally in the news, uh, BlizzCon took place over the weekend down in Anaheim, California. I know a lot of my uh, my Alea Yakta Est guildies uh, were down there. There was uh, a lot of really cool uh, happenings going on. And uh, obviously there was a lot of news about things like Hearthstone and Diablo and Heroes of the Storm and, uh, and the next WoW expansion. All really great stuff, but it has very, very little to nothing to do with, uh, with the content of this show. However, Polygon reports that Blizzard has stated that they have a small team working to get the original Warcraft Orcs vs. Humans and Warcraft 2 Tides of Darkness working properly on modern PCs. Now, I think this is awesome news. Uh, there's, there's really, as far as I know, no real way to uh, officially get the original uh, two Warcraft uh, RTS games uh, aside from, you know, you can go on Torrent and all that and uh, try and get them running in DOSBox. And uh, as I recall, I did try doing that quite a, a few years ago with an earlier version of DOSBox, and, and the original game was quite uh, quite flaky. Now, this is great news, but we don't have any details as to whether they're just going to be uh, repackaging the original games for sale, or uh, whether they're going to be HD remakes, or they're going to be kind of Monkey Island style, where you'd be able to switch between an HD version and the original version uh, kind of at will. Either way, as I said, awesome news, really excited, and uh, I've been kind of playing around on the Facebook group saying, you know, with all this BlizzCon news, I really should one of these days uh, do do a show on uh, Warcraft and Starcraft and kind of these, uh, maybe more Warcraft, kind of the the, the beginnings of, uh, of Blizzard's dominance, let's say, but uh, you know, those are very nerve-wracking shows to do when I do kind of these very, very big series, like when I did Tex Murphy and you know, the Space Quest games or the kind of the, some of the Sierra Quest games and something as well known even to this day as Warcraft. I mean, there's so much lore and there's so much history and there's so many stories that it, I know it would make a really, really cool episode, but it's also kind of uh, a pretty big topic to uh, to tackle. But, you know, don't don't despair. I'm pretty sure uh, in the very near future, I'll likely be hitting a, uh, a Warcraft episode. So that's that for the news. Uh, we got a lot to talk about with our, our main topic this week, so let's get on with things. You're listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. Time for... Over. 
Okay, on to the main event, a series that I am very excited to cover, the Dark Forces slash Jedi Knight series. Now, this is a series of four games published and developed mostly by LucasArts with uh, a couple of games thrown in developed by Raven Software. The first game in the series, named Dark Forces, came out in the year 1995. So, Dark Forces is of a genre that we've definitely seen before. This is a first-person shooter. Quickly, a first-person shooter places the player in the role of usually a lone hero. Now, that hero's task is to make their way through a series of maps defeating enemies along the way. Uh, Enemies are defeated with the use of a variety of weapons. These can range from bare fists to swords and other melee weapons to contemporary guns, all the way to fantasy and sci-fi weapons, explosives, all that kind of stuff. Uh, Despite this huge range of possibility, most FPS games follow a common template with regard to weapon progression. Uh, Usually, there's one or two melee weapons, such as fists or a knife. Second, you have kind of a precise semi-automatic weapon along the lines of a pistol. Then there's usually a kind of utility weapon, such as a rifle or a shotgun. And then there's more rapid-fire weapons, such as a machine gun or a chain gun. Following that is some type of explosive, either thrown or launched, uh, grenades or rocket launcher. And finally, you have some type of heavier weapon, which uh, can vary from game to game, but is generally very, very powerful and very slow firing. Uh, Levels may be related to each other and tied together via story. Uh, This is most definitely not a requirement, as we've seen in games like Wolfenstein 3D and things like that. Uh, They can just be kind of strung together with the the very barest threads of... uh, of a narrative and basically just require you to run around and uh, and kill stuff. So that's that. We've seen a lot of FPSs uh, thus far. It's a pretty popular genre. It was kind of created in this uh, in the time frame I like to focus on. So let's move on to the story. You are listening to the Upper Podcast. So unlike other FPS games we've covered thus far, most of them being kind of in the id pantheon of uh, of first-person shooters, Dark Forces actually has a very engaging and involved story. Now, I know I probably don't have to say it, but I guess I should come out right right at the beginning. Dark Forces obviously takes place in the very rich and long-lived Star Wars universe. Now, very specifically, the story we are following is that of Kyle Katarn. Kyle has a history that begins long before we meet him in the game. Now, I'm not sure if this history actually is stated anywhere uh, in the game, but, uh, you know, because of the richness of, of Star Wars Expanded Universe and all that, we got a little bit uh, a little bit to say here, a little bit of background. So as a boy, Kyle was, uh, as, uh, as is common in the Star Wars universe, a simple farm boy learning the tricks of the trade needed to become a mighty agricultural mechanic like his father before him. Now, while he was away at Agricultural Mechanics School, I guess we can call it, uh, he's told by Imperial officials that his parents have been killed in a rebel raid. This devastates Kyle and uh, leads him to abandon his schooling and join the Imperial Army to take the fight to the rebels and avenge the death of his parents. Katarn soon meets and befriends a woman named Jan Ors. It turns out that she is a rebel double agent. She does some digging with her rebel contacts and uncovers some incontrovertible proof about the truth of the fate of Kyle's parents. They were not killed by the rebels. They were, in fact, killed by the Empire. Eventually, the Empire discovered, discovers Orz's divided loyalties and imprisons her. Kyle decides to help his friend escape, unceremoniously ending his Imperial military career as soon as it began. 
Orz returns to the Alliance, while Katarn goes his own way, putting his military training to good use as a mercenary. Despite his going it alone, he does take on missions for the Rebellion from time to time. So this is where we find ourselves at the beginning of the game, and it's a good place to start talking gameplay. Now, it's shortly before the start of Star Wars Episode Four: A New Hope, the original movie. Without much fanfare or introductory cinematics or anything like that, we are dropped into a text-only briefing delivered by Mon Mothma, leader of the Rebellion. It reads as follows. Prologue Mission 1, The Death Star Plans. Confidential method message from Senator Mon Mothma. The Rebellion is counting on the completion of this mission, Commander Katarn. I hope success is on your side. The Death Star plans are locked away and awaiting transport in an Imperial secret base on the planet Danuta. Very little is known about the layout of the base itself, so I'm afraid you will have to act as your own reconnaissance and infiltrate the base cold. You are then dropped into the Imperial secret base. With regard to gameplay, this is a fairly standard FPS game set in the Star Wars universe. However, for its time, it does expand on the games that came before it. Unlike the game that a lot of people say inspired it, Doom, Dark Forces allowed you to look up and down in addition to crouch and jump. So our goal is to make our way through the secret base, find a Death Star plans, and then escape. Of course, there are a wide variety of enemies to contend with. Imperial officers, stormtroopers, Death Star troopers, droids, and much, much more. Uh, to take them down, we will need weapons. There are a total of 10 of them in the game. Uh, obviously, you don't have access to all 10 in this first level, but let's go through them since, you know, the weapons kind of define the fun that you have in, uh, in an FPS. So, as in many games, you start off with your fists. Uh, the ammo for your fists is obviously unlimited, but uh, you'll have to get right up to your target to do any damage. More likely than not, if you're using these, you're in kind of a jam and you're probably going to die. Next, we have the modified Briar Laser Pistol. Now, this is your starting weapon. It's fairly weak, it has a low rate of fire, but it's incredibly accurate at long range. This is a good weapon to use to pick off targets at long range. Third, we have the workhorse of the game, the Stormtrooper Rifle. This is my usual go-to weapon. It's not incredibly accurate. You can even tell that when uh, the kind of when you fire the, the laser bolts kind of don't exactly always go in a straight line. So inaccurate, but it fires at a much higher rate than the pistol. It also uses two energy cells per shot versus the pistol's one energy cell. Fourthly, we have the thermal detonator. This is effectively a grenade. It is also the first weapon you get that has a secondary firing mode, which is kind of a, a cool aspect of things that, uh, that Dark Forces introduced. So by hitting the standard fire button, which is usually control or... Uh, the left mouse button, you just lob the detonator, and when it hits something, it explodes. This is great if you don't happen to hit anything too close to yourself. Obviously, being a grenade, it has splash damage, and you can uh, you can take hits if, uh, if it blows up too close to you. In its secondary mode, which is activated by hitting the Z, or Z for my American friends, key, uh, the detonator will be thrown, but it will explode with a three-second delay as opposed to on impact. Next, we have the Imperial Repeater. This is a rapid-fire plasma gun. In its secondary mode, it fires a slower three-shot cluster, which applies damage kind of over a, a wider area, which I guess in MMO turns you call a PBAOE, which I never really 
knew what that meant. It was like personal something area of effect. But anyways, after that, we have the fusion cutter, which is a construction tool, which doubles as a weapon. In its primary mode, it fires from one of its four barrels at a time. In its secondary mode, it fires all four barrels at once, which is really good for clearing hallways, but it burns through ammo real fast. Next, we have kind of these standard mines, which can be set for a three-second delay or in motion sensor mode. Uh, the Packard Mortar Gun launches relatively weak mortar shells for area of effect damage. The Concussion Rifle is actually one of the best weapons in the game. Uh, it fires ionized air shells, which explode on impact. So you don't have to be very accurate with the Concussion Rifle. Finally, we have the big granddaddy weapon, the Assault Cannon, which is actually one of the Dark Trooper's own weapons. Uh, it fires a rapid stream of plasma bolts in its primary mode and rockets in its secondary. So on top of all these offensive weapons, you also have two layers of defense. Shields block against energy attacks, while regular health protects your, you from uh, physical harm, and it also protects you against energy once your shields are gone. Uh, shields don't recharge. You have to pick up shield packs and boosters and health packs and all kind of the standard tropes of uh, first-person shooters to recharge your uh, both your your uh, health and your shields. So after making your way through the multi-level Imperial base, collecting keys, going up elevators, finding Death Star plans, and making your way to the roof, you meet up with your ship, the Moldy Crow, and the following cutscene, which ends the prologue and begins the game proper. Kyle delivers the plans to the Rebel Alliance. Soon afterwards, the Death Star is destroyed. But even as the Alliance celebrates this victory, another sinister plot is set in motion that will become an even greater concern for the Rebellion. has approved your test demonstration, General Mock. Thank you, Lord Vader. What I unveil today will mark a new era for the Empire. We will be able to decimate the Rebels just as we did the Jedi Knights. At last, the Emperor's war will be filled only with the glory and beauty of decisive victory. A noble cause, General. I hope the demonstration lives up to your claims. Proceed. With pleasure. Dark Trooper, release. General, the Emperor will be most pleased. Continue with your project. Certainly, Lord Vader. Thank you, Commander, for responding at such short notice. The Empire has been keeping us on the run since the destruction of the Death Star. 
Five days ago, the Empire attacked one of our secret bases in the city of Talay. was destroyed within minutes. Many innocent people in the surrounding city as well as the rebel staff were killed. Intelligence thinks that this may be an act of retaliation for the destruction of the Death Star. Interesting. This looks like it could be a normal Imperial attack. Except for those sounds. Very perceptive, Commander. I know you understand that all we discuss here is classified. This Imperial officer, Crix Medine, wishes to defect to the Alliance. He has supplied us with information on the development of a new Imperial weapon. Those sounds you heard, we believe, come from that weapon. A new type of Stormtrooper, the Dark Trooper. A new Stormtrooper that can take out a Rebel base that quickly? I should have kept working for the Empire. The Rebel Command is not taking this lightly. They have authorized me to hire you to find out if there is a threat, and if there is, to shut it down. That is, if you are still on our side. This could be interesting. Alright, I'm in. But I think I'll need some help on this one. I want Jan Ors as my mission officer. Certainly. Then I will let Jan brief you further on your mission objectives. Thank you, Commander. And may the Force be with you. Thus begins the true plot of the game involving the Dark Trooper project. Now this is really quite a compelling and well-told Star Wars story, so I'm not going to go into too much detail. And, uh, you know, I don't really need to go much more into gameplay. As I said, this is a fairly standard FPS. You go through, you kill enemies, you jump through things, you solve key puzzles and, and other stuff like that. We'll get into more details about cool uh, cool features and stuff in in dev story but uh suffice it to say it's it's worth playing through this through the game just just for the uh the star warsness of it all you're listening to the upper memory block podcast time for Okay, tech time. Dark Forces required at least a 386DX CPU running at 33 MHz, 8 MB of RAM, 3.5 MB of hard drive space, that's 3.5 MB, which is really not very much, not even a song these days, uh, DOS 5.0, and VGA graphics at 320x200 displaying 256 colors. Requirements-wise, fairly standard for 1995. Now, what I really want to talk about is the game engine. 
Dark Forces ran on what was known as the Jedi Engine. As we'll see in Dev Story, uh, the game's lead designer, Darren Stinnett, loved Wolfenstein 3D and wanted to make a Star Wars game that was much like it. However, he wanted it to do more. To this end, he brought his associate Ray Gresco on board. Gresco was a brilliant graphics engineer, and he immediately got to work building an engine for, for this game. Uh, the Jedi engine wasn't a true 3D engine, however. It was 2.5D, just like Wolf 3D and Doom. It did, however, support a true third dimension. Maps could be multi-level with rooms placed on top of other rooms. Now, the only way they were able to do this in games like Doom, if you go back to that episode, was kind of by using these weird hacky teleportation type uh, type deals and, and things like that, whereas the Jedi engine actually supported putting rooms on top of other rooms. So in addition to that, the new engine also supported the ability to look up and down. This was very helpful in creating a greater sense of immersion. Players could also jump and crouch. This capability was definitely leveraged in various uh, jumping puzzles and crouching to get into like utility, crawlways, and, and things like that. Again, very, very helpful for, for a great sense of immersion. All these capabilities were quite similar to those that would be found in the build engine, which would later be used in Duke Nukem 3D, so it seems that these capabilities were the next logical step in first-person shooter engine design. Despite this kind of logical progression, or you'd think logical progression, there was a prevailing rumor that the Dark Forces team got their hands on an early alpha version of Doom. Now, this rumor has actually been confirmed by the game's designer. Uh, the second part of the rumor, though, claims that the Dark Forces team reverse-engineered the Doom engine to make the Jedi engine. This has been denied by both Darren Stinnett and Ray Gresco. Uh, a look at uh, the internal structures of the two engines also lends credence to the fact that Gresco built the whole thing independently, as while they do perform many of the same tasks, they do so in very different implementations. Now, unfortunately, the Jedi engine wouldn't last very long. It only powered Dark Forces and Darren Stinnett's following game, Outlaws. Uh, it would then be replaced by the fully 3D Sith engine, which we'll talk about later on in the dev story. Now, with regard to music, as with almost every LucasArts game we've seen, Dark Forces used the iMuse event-based music system. Uh, the Star Wars music was, of course, based on John Williams' original score, and new tracks were composed by LucasArts veteran composer Clint Bajakian. As always, the music is great and fitting to the situations, while at the same time remaining very, very Star Wars. You're listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. Time for... Okay, dev story time. I'm kind of burning through the first part of the show here. I guess we'll see, uh, we'll see how we end up. So, the story of Dark Forces and Jedi Knight lies mostly with a man who we've kind of mentioned in passing already, Darren Stinnett. Uh, now, Darren was uh, in high school in the early 80s, and he did not own a computer. However, his friends did. Uh, so they had access to computers, but they didn't have access to any games. So they decided in a very logical fashion that they wanted games and they didn't have any, so they should probably just make some. 
Now, Darren started off making clones of games that he enjoyed. His first game was a clone of Lunar Lander, and uh, you know that one was really just for uh, the personal enjoyment of he and his friends. His first commercial project was a copy of a game, or a kind of reimagining of a game called Omega Race, which was a 1981 arcade game by Midway. Now, their version was named Space Race. They made that for the Tandy Color computer and began distributing it via enthusiast magazines. Now, Darren says that sales of Space Race brought in enough money for he and his friends to buy their first cars, which, if you've ever been a teenage boy, is certainly a big deal. Now, this early success while in high school led him to decide to forego going to college and jump directly into the fledgling game industry. His first job was at Seattle-based developer and publisher Synergistic Software. He started there in late 1983 or early 1984. He doesn't quite remember. But uh, there he did work on quite a few games for the ever-popular Apple II. His early projects were one-man shows, with Darren doing the design, programming, and all the art. Eventually, a dedicated artist was added on, transforming his games into two-man operations where he could focus more on design and coding, where the artist would kind of sit and do all of the, uh, the art assets and kind of things like that. Eventually, he would move into a more managerial and design-focused role as game projects steadily got larger and larger as his career uh, kind of progressed. Now, around 1990, he joined Spectrum Holobyte, where he took over the executive producer role on Falcon 3.0, which is definitely another game series I will have to cover at some point. I haven't touched a flight sim in quite a while. Now, the project was in progress when he came into it, and eventually, with many, many patches and kind of the the story of Falcon 3.0, which one day, as I said, we'll talk about, uh, the game ended up being a huge success. Around the same time, one of his very talented co-workers left Spectrum Holobyte for a little company called LucasArts. Knowing LucasArts' reputation, in addition to being a huge Star Wars fan, Darren didn't take very much convincing from this friend to start talking with some people at LucasArts and uh, eventually make the move. He was taken out for lunch at Skywalker Ranch, met George Lucas, and was very soon thereafter brought on board at LucasArts. Now, his job description at LucasArts was pretty wide open. It was kind of a dream job description. He was a game designer and basically was given carte blanche to make whatever kind of game he wanted and gather whatever team he deemed necessary to get it done. It's a pretty, pretty good deal. Of course, the first thing he wanted to do being a Star Wars fan was a Star Wars game. By this time, X-Wing had come out and had achieved amazing success. It defined what a high-quality Star Wars game could be. There were only two other projects in development at the time with regard to Star Wars. The first was an SNES game that would eventually become known as Super Star Wars. It was being developed by an external contractor. Secondly was Vince Lee's Rebel Assault, again another game that I will most definitely be covering. Uh, Aside from these three titles though, X-Wing, Super Star Wars, and Rebel Assault, everything else in development were non-Star Wars related adventure games. You know, as we've seen, Sam and Max, Loom, Day of the Tentacle, all Indiana Jones, all those kinds of things. So this was LucasArts' golden age. The offices were located in San Rafael, California, in a nondescript building with no signage. It was actually the same building where Industrial Light and Magic was located. So inside this nondescript building with the sign Kerner Optics Company 
on on it was was a treasure trove. The buildings were filled with props, matte paintings, and other amazing artifacts of the Star Wars films and other LucasArts and or Lucasfilm and ILM productions. The environment was creative and carefree, an amazing one to create a hit game in. So, Darren was on board, and he wanted to make a Star Wars game, and he had the resources to do it. But, well, what was he going to make? Well, Darren was a big fan of Wolfenstein 3D, so his choice was pretty easy. His basic idea, even before he had the job offer, was to make a Star Wars version of Wolfenstein. Well, that was the basic idea as he pitched it, what he really wanted to do in his heart of hearts was to simply be able to walk around in a Star Destroyer. The fantasy he pictured in his mind was to walk into the control room overlooking the docking bay in that Star Destroyer where you know shuttles and TIE fighters and everything would be taking off and coming in. And no matter how else he explained Dark Forces to press and to management and to his team, that single image was really the driving force for everything else that was done on the game. So as we discussed a little bit in tech focus, the biggest challenge in creating Dark Forces is that, you know, 3D or 2.5D engines like those of Wolfenstein 3D or Doom didn't support the ability to create these vast open spaces such as the large docking bay of the Star Destroyer. To make Darren's vision come to life, he made a call to former co-worker uh, Gray Gresco, who he knew from Spectrum Holobyte. Now this was the initial team, Stinnett and Gresco. They got down to coding. Darren focused on the logic control systems and the AI, while Ray, as I said, being, you know, kind of the brilliant graphics engineer that he was, focused on developing the 3D engine. So as this down and dirty engine and AI system development progressed, the next challenge became how to build the levels that Darren had envisioned. Up to this point, no one at LucasArts had any experience building levels in a 3D space. Their experience was in 2D platform design. Now, Darren describes the 2D level design process as basically laying down tiles. In fact, the game designers themselves rarely built levels for the games. The LucasArts quality assurance team actually had a tradition of doubling as 2D level designers. Now, he quickly came to the realization that there was no way to boil down the creation of complex 3D geometries needed for dark forces into a process that was basically like stamping down tiles. Something else had to be done. In an effort to understand what exactly would be needed to design levels for this game, Darren started reading architecture books. Now, after doing this for a little while, he realized that the people he needed to design his levels were not part-time QA people, part-time level designers, he needed architects. So at an afternoon movie screening over at Skywalker Ranch, Darren bounced this idea off of a coworker sitting next to him. An ILM staffer sitting in the row in front turned around and started telling Stinnett about an acquaintance of his who taught in the architecture program down at UC Berkeley. He mentioned how this professor was always talking about how her architecture students loved playing video games. So he got in contact with this professor, and she pointed him towards some of her students who she claimed loved games like Doom and Wolfenstein. <laughs> These students soon left architecture school to join LucasArts as their first 3D level designers. Darren claims to this day 
that these architecture students turned level designers made Dark Forces truly unique. Spaces in the game had proper proportions, structured makes sense in a physical way. It was truly a stroke of genius to bring these guys onto the team. Now, I don't know if they regret leaving architecture school to become game designers. I suspect that they don't. Now, when asked to talk about one thing that he kind of describes as, as one of the most impressive feats with regard to Dark Forces, Darren will say it's the fact that the Jedi engine supported what he called moving geometries. That is, large portions of the map could move, either independently or via player action. Things like huge doors would open, bridges extend, wall sections could blow out, ships would come and go from landing bays, rivers float along with things in them, containers moved out conveyor belts. All this very active environment was very new at the time. Now, Darren says that when the map is static, it's very easy to pre-compute things and make the game render very fast. They were able to incorporate these dynamic world events, but still maintain the speed and fluidity of their game. That was truly an accomplishment at the time. Now, a lot of the plot and story details of Dark Forces were devised by Justin Chin, who is the lead artist. Uh, he came up with the whole concept of Dark Troopers. Chin states that the idea for them was very simple. They were basically more challenging than standard stormtroopers. Now, being that this is LucasArts, his initial two designs for the Dark Trooper were rejected by Lucas Licensing because they were too out of character for the Star Wars universe. He kind of made them a little bit too scary looking, a little too demonic looking. Uh, so he revised them, and eventually the Dark Trooper was born. He designed them with the idea in mind that they wouldn't just be meaner stormtroopers, they would be much more efficient and much more terrifying. Chin also created additional weapons that hadn't previously existed in the Star Wars universe, and uh, he actually ended up naming them after people and things he liked. So the Briar Pistol is named after one of his favorite composers, Gavin Briars, and the Packard Mortar Gun is uh, named after Packard Automobiles. Not Packard Bell Computers, but Packard Automobiles. Finally, one last challenge to the development came directly from LucasArts Upper Management. This was that the game had to be released for both PC and Mac, and more importantly, both versions needed to have relatively equivalent system requirements. Now, the sticking point of this situation wasn't CPU, it wasn't graphics, it wasn't anything like that, it was RAM. So obviously, back in 1995, uh, the Mac ran a graphical operating system. I'm not sure what system it was, it might have been System 7 or something like that, if any of you older... Uh, Mac people can, can let me know. But uh, so the Mac had a graphical operating system, whereas the PC ran DOS in a command line. Uh, the Mac, because of this, had less RAM available for programs to run. As a result, the memory management subsystem in the Mac version of Dark Forces is quite a bit more efficient than the one in the DOS version. They had to put a little bit more effort into that one to kind of fit everything in there and have, it, uh, have the game run smoothly with less available memory. So that's that. February 28th, 1995, Dark Force has released a huge success and a little bit of criticism. Uh, the critics quickly named it a Doom clone. Stennett is the first to agree with this. The whole team were huge Wolfenstein fans, and Doom actually released while Dark Forces was in development. The team then proceeded to play tons and tons of Doom, whereas Doom focused on pure action and multiplayer, as we discussed again back in the Doom show, 
Darren had his singular vision in mind. To him, Dark Forces was a trip into the Star Wars universe. The FPS aspects were there, but this was a game that brought forward a finely crafted story and an immersive single-player experience. They took the FPS genre in their own direction, though Darren says he did smart a little bit at the criticisms that the game would have been even better with with a multiplayer component. He agrees that, uh, that it would have. In addition, some players complained about the lack of melee weapons, or more specifically, the lack of lightsabers. This would soon be resolved. Despite these issues, Dark Forces was a revolutionary game, and gamers and critics alike knew it. You are listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. Of course, the success of Dark Forces led to the immediate development of a sequel, which was called Jedi Knight. Darren Stinnett was a little bit burnt out after bringing Dark Forces to market, so he moved on to a project in his other area of interest, Spaghetti Westerns. Justin Chin, who, as we've already said, acted as lead artist on the first game, took over the, uh, the executive producer spot. So, it's one year after the events of Dark Forces. The Empire is destroyed, and the former Rebel Alliance is struggling to form a new government known as the New Republic. We find Kyle Katarn meeting with droid information broker 8T88, who tells him his father has been killed by a dark Jedi known as Jarek. I want you to remember, son, when you're at the Academy, how very proud I am of you. What a fine young man you've become. I wish your mother were here to see it. But I know she watches over you and is proud. After she died, your welfare and upbringing was the only thing I truly cared about. Touching. When someone desires information, they come to me. Don't waste my time, 88. Tell me who killed my father. Patience. He is a dark Jedi. Jedi? Dark Jedi. He is known as Jeric, and he has great plans for the rebirth of the Empire. I'm not interested in petty political struggles. Well, you should be. Without going into too much detail, Jeric has been quite generous in his offerings. Unfortunately, you don't factor into them. But I am not without a heart. Familiar, yes. I found it in your dead father's home. I can decipher any language or code known, but this one eludes me. It must be important. Tell me what it is, and these gentlemen won't have to indulge their darker side. The dark side? I've been there. Do your worst. Well, I suppose that concludes our business. I'm not interested in leaving. I have some business to conclude with your friend, 88. So this results in a chase across Narshada, where Kyle retrieves his father's data disk. He then returns to his boyhood home with the help of his friend Jan Ors and his ship, the Moldy Crow. 
Decoding the data disc leads Kyle on an adventure to the Valley of the Jedi, discovery of his latent force abilities, and a choice between light and dark. The most important aspects of Jedi Knight were, of course, lightsaber combat and force powers. Powers came in three flavors, light, dark, and neutral. Neutral powers enhance physical attributes like run speed, jump height, things like that. Light powers provide non-violent bonuses like increased defense, healing, or persuasion. Dark powers do exactly what you think they do. You can shoot lightning, you can choke people, all kinds of mean stuff like that. Uh, Puzzles in the game also occasionally require the use of force powers. Between levels, you earn stars to put towards different force powers. Uh, If you invest more in light side power and treat uh, non-aggressive NPCs well, you'll follow the light path to the light ending And, of course, investing in dark powers and killing non-aggressive NPCs will result in the dark ending. Jedi Knight was built on a new platform, the Sith Engine. Unlike the Jedi Engine that came before it, Sith was a true 3D engine. Now, much like the Descent Engine, it was portal-based. That is, game areas are defined as large, convex polyhedrons, if you want to get all mathematical. Basically, big, convex kind of... uh, geographical, not geographical, geometric shapes, which are connected by adjoining polygonal passages. So areas that were not in the current zone were not rendered, making rendering of the entire level much faster. It was also an early example of a scripted game engine. Sith had an integrated scripting language known as COG, similar in use to the SCUM scripting language used in all the LucasArts adventure games. Uh, It was more complete than the INF scripting language, which was used in the Jedi engine for Dark Forces. Now, there were two other very notable aspects of Jedi Knight. Firstly, unlike Dark Forces, Jedi Knight had a multiplayer mode. It supported up to eight players via LAN play or four players online. Uh, Players could select a skin for their character in addition to a custom lightsaber color. Multiplayer came in two modes, Capture the Flag and Jedi Training, which was effectively Deathmatch. Finally, Jedi Knight's cutscenes were not animated like they were in Dark Forces. 1995 was the time of full motion video, and LucasArts was not going to miss this bus. Almost all the human and alien characters in Jedi Knight were played by actual actors. Granted, none of them were incredibly well known. (laughs) Kyle Katarn was played by Jason Court whose most notable role before this was an episode of David Duchovny's softcore porn series, The Red Shoe Diaries. Uh, The writing, acting, and effects are about on par for FMV games of the time. That is, they aren't all that good. However, despite this, they still tell a fairly good, again, Star Wars story. Now, this is a little bit interesting because you'd figure that LucasArts would have the resources of Lucasfilm good screenwriters, good directors, blah, blah, blah. But honestly, it didn't happen. This is just as cheesy as uh, as most other FMV games at the time with regard to acting and story and all that stuff. Uh, the game released in 1997 to positive reviews. Some critics stated the levels were fairly linear and uh, that the enemy AI could use some work. Uh, graphics got mixed reviews as well. The non-3D accelerated game didn't look all that great. Uh, One thing that was universally praised, though, was the sense of scale in the spaces provided by the Sith engine. In 1998, an expansion to Jedi Knight called Mysteries of the Sith came out. 
This expansion takes place five years after the events of Jedi Knight. Kyle is now a Jedi Master and has taken on Mara Jade, former Hand of Emperor Palpatine, as his Jedi Apprentice. On a side note, Mara Jade is a very big part of uh, the Star Wars Expanded Universe. If you'd like to know more about her, hey, you can drop me a line or uh, just visit Wikipedia. She's very, very interesting, very rich, and very complex character. Uh, going through this expansion, you control both Mara Jade and Kyle Katarn throughout the different levels. The Sith engine was slightly improved with colored lighting for this version, and the FMV sequences were also dispensed with and replaced by in-engine voiced cutscenes. Now, 2002 brought us Jedi Knight 2, Jedi Outcast. Set two years after Mysteries of the Sith, Kyle Katarn has renounced his Jedi status after coming perilously close to falling to the dark side. He's back to his old mercenary ways, working as a hired gun for the New Republic. The plot of this game is fairly complex, but suffice it to say, Kyle and Jan Ors have to stop the plans of a renegade Jedi, all the while relearning his abandoned Jedi skills. Jedi Outcast was developed by Raven Software and, and published by uh, LucasArts. The game placed much more emphasis on lightsaber combat than the previous game, offering three different styles, each of varying speeds and powers and things like that. This time around, though, cutscenes were animated. Kyle was voiced by Jeff Bennett, who's a well-known voice actor who's voiced such characters as Johnny Bravo and Brooklyn from the Gargoyles. Uh, the game also featured the voice of Billy D. Williams in the role of, course, Lando Calrissian. The game ran on the Quake 3 Team Arena engine with Raven's custom SDK sitting on top. An SDK is a software development kit. For those of you who don't know about it, it's basically a tool set that uh, developers put together for, uh, for use by other developers. So finally, in 2003, we get the final game in the series, Jedi Knight Jedi Academy. This game was again developed by Raven Software and ran on the same engine as the previous game. You take control of Jedi student Jaden Kaur, who is either male or female, depending on your selection at the beginning of the game. You are, you are an apprentice under the tutelage of Kyle Katarn, and on your way to the Jedi Academy on Yavin 4, which is incidentally the same moon on which the original rebel base from A New Hope was located, uh, your shuttle shot down and uh, you have to make a way, your way to, uh, to the Jedi Temple on foot. Along the way, you battle through stormtroopers, dark Jedi, and you know all that noise, and uh, you eventually arrive and perform various missions for both Kyle Katarn and Jedi Master Luke Skywalker himself. As with all other entries in the series, the game was really quite successful and well received. You are listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. So, what? does the future hold for the Dark Forces slash Jedi Knight series? Well, I guess I'll go into the mantra that I've been going into since the demise of LucasArts. I don't know. In a way, Star Wars The Old Republic, the MMO, has taken up some aspects of Dark Forces. In other ways, it hasn't. I guess we'll just have to keep an eye on Disney and, and see what they end up doing. I would love another Jedi-powered first-person shooter. So where can we get our hands on the Jedi Knight series today? Well, this one, again, is very easy. All the games are available on Steam for $3 to $10 each or in a single bundle for $19.99 USD. 
They work great without any tweaks, although I did run into some small crashes in Jedi Knight, which you could witness firsthand over on my YouTube channel at youtube.com slash umbcast. Now, I don't know if the crashes were being caused because I was streaming to Twitch at the same time or because I was flipping around resolutions or something like that, but uh, suffice to say that uh, I was able to play through the game uh, without too much trouble after I figured out what not to do to avoid the crashes. Attention, attention! Are you a fan of MASH, one of the most groundbreaking television series in history? Then take a listen to the MASH 4077 podcast, where hosts Kenny, Simon, and Al discuss their thoughts episode by episode. They will also share with you some little-known behind-the-scenes information, trivia, and so much more. So come and find them on iTunes by searching MASH 4077 podcast or online at www.mash4077podcast.com. So before we get to the verdict, you guys have a lot to say this week. First of all, an email from good friend of the show, BJ. He writes, Hi, Joe and fellow blockers. I am so happy you are covering dark, the Dark Forces slash Jedi Knight series. I never really played many of the earlier games, but I played the ever-living crap out of Jedi Academy. More the multiplayer with bots than anything else. Maybe once GOG gets them DRM-free, I'll feel more comfortable trying my hand at playing more Jedi Academy again. As it stands, I'll just keep it in my Steam library for now. Anyways, good luck with the show, and I can't wait to hear it. See you on the Facebook page in the Steam group, BJ. Well, thank you, BJ, for that email. Um, yeah, you know, GOG, I don't think, has any Lucas of the uh, any LucasArts games at all. And I'm not sure if it's because uh, they're, they're DRM-free or something like that, but... Uh, if they're in your Steam library, hey, try and try and fire it up. But uh, if not, maybe GOG will get them one day. Next, an email from Martin. That's Martin with a Y. He writes, Hi, Joe. Love the podcast. I'm currently working my way haphazardly through your back catalog after recently being told about your show. Considering how long it's taken me just to get an email away to you, I'm stunned at your prolificity. Playing, researching, writing, and recording a show in such a short time frame is no mean feat. When I heard you were going to cover Dark Forces, I was thrilled. Although I didn't play the original Dark Forces, but uh, the first sequel, Jedi Knight, defined gaming of that era for me. The game was ambitious in its scope and scale, and had the first truly rotoscoped lightsabers filmed by LucasArts slash LucasFilm since Return of the Jedi, on top of uh, very respectable fully fully acted FMV sequences. As any Star Wars fan of my age, born 1983, so brought into the fold by my dad, it was a revelation. As with a lot of people I spoke with, I was first exposed to Jedi Knight by its outstanding demo, the ninth level of the full game, the Fuel Depot. It was a perfect showcase for the grand scale uh, typical of the game and reminiscent of the original films with large open areas, imposing architecture, and huge vertical drops and climbs that were actually capable of inducing vertigo in those with that particular proclivity. It had a tight narrative with a clear objective that showed off a handful of the force powers you'd ultimately get to play with in the full version, and uh, most of the weapons, in particular, it lets us get hold of a lightsaber. To keep this from getting too unfocused and ultimately boring for your listeners, I'll just touch on a few of the elements that made this game a classic for me. Some of these are functions of the era in which I played it, and others more on their own terms. There was a huge multiplayer scene which erupted around the Microsoft Gaming Zone. The zone, as it became known, was at once incredibly good at allowing people to set up multiplayer games, but awful at it in its implementation. Hacking was rife, 
abuse common, and most of the games set up were the same map with the same limits advertised by esoteric acronyms that ruled over that had ruled over by zealous script kitties. Despite this, I spent many a happy hour playing the multiplayer and ended up a member of uh, the still-going mod community. Things that set Jedi Knight apart from its contemporary FPS games, games like Quake 2, if uh, I've got my dates right, date right, dates right, sorry, were one, a sense of scale. I mentioned this in my opening about the demo, but the engine that powered Jedi Knight was a sector-based negative space engine, meaning that its forte was rendering very large open areas, the kind of which you rarely saw in the claustrophobic corridor shooters like the Quake series. It really gave the game that Star Wars feel. Two, the Force powers. Despite the lack of those in the original Dark Forces, these really elevated the game with an RPG-esque empowerment system. The running and jumping powers felt game-breaking in places, the Cho power was always funny, though I doubt that was the intent, and things like Persuade allowed you to have tons of fun with stacking the sequencer charges. They were, they were a layer of joy slapped on top of an already competent FPS. 3. Choice. Though a bit of a buzzword now, there was a rudimentary light-dark system which forced you down one path at a critical point in the game which ultimately affected the FMV sequence at the ending you get after beating Jarek, but also which pool of aligned force powers you had access to. For what it's worth, the game was much easier to beat with the light side. A ca- 4. A cast of great boss characters. While FPSs might have had mini-bosses dotted throughout the game, it was rare. Jedi Knight had a conclave of dark Jedi that you would carve through one by one as your skills grew, starting with Yun, the dark youth. Or maybe it's you, and I can't quite remember. Sorry, that's me talking, not the email. Uh, The encounters were sometimes tedious due to the limits of the lightsaber combat system, but they gave a real sense of progression and offered narrative landmarks to hang the plot from. Okay, I reckon I've probably gone on far... Far too long for you to read out all of this, but I felt compelled to write some of this down as Jedi Knight was such a seminal game to me. Love the show, and I look forward to hearing what you've got to say on the matter. Martin, with a Y, from York, UK. Well, thank you, Martin. You know, that was a really, really great email. Very complete. You touched on a couple of things that I definitely uh, skimmed over a bit more with regard to Jedi Knight. And, uh, you know, I do really remember that. More so than in Dark Forces, because Dark Forces didn't use a negative space engine. It used more of a... uh, kind of traditional doom style sector-based intersecting wall uh model albeit with the stacking rooms thing there was a sense of scale in the first game but the sense of scale in the second game was just crazy and uh you know i do have very vivid memories of uh of boss battles in jedi knight i know i uh, repeated a few of them <laughs> quite a few times but uh you know it, it was a very cool game it was interesting that you did have these boss battles i didn't remember that from from earlier games and stuff like that so yeah again great great email great information please keep sending stuff in and uh thank you thank you so much next we have a message from our regular martin this time with an i he writes in hey joe it's been a while since i sent something in but i still listen to every show please keep up the awesome job i'm super glad you are doing dark forces this game was my jam it was one of the few Star Wars games I was uh, introduced to when my dad sat me down and we watched all three Star Wars movies together. As a kid, this game blew me away. Back in those days, you were used to playing video games based on movies that featured characters and sets from said movie, but not with Dark Forces. It was one of the first franchises that allowed me to think outside the confines of the given material and see stories, places, and characters not seen in the movies. This was quite the novelty when you were younger. 
I didn't know it at the time, but this would all become part of the Star Wars Expanded Universe that I would come to cherish. Hearing all the sound effects and voice acting in the game was a real treat. To this day, my cousins and siblings will shout, you are not authorized in this area when someone brings up Dark Forces. Similar to how one of us will quote, you must register from X-Wing when we get annoyed signing up to various websites. To this day, Kyle Katarn is one of my favorite characters and the Moldy Crow is my is my all-time coolest ships is on my all-time coolest ships list. Sadly, I do have to blame Kyle for the ongoing Star Wars trope. This character is badass, time to make him a Jedi, which still plagues many EU characters and storylines. Oh well. Another thing that bugged me is how they handled Kyle Katarn in Empire at War, a PC RTS game. Empire at War takes place before New Hope but they give Katarn a beard and fail to give him the Moldy Crow in space combat, they put him in a transport ship. Anyway, hope you had fun punching dragons in the face. Keep on doing these excellent podcasts. You'll definitely hear from me if you ever get around to doing Rebel Assault. Well, thank you, Martin, and I do plan on doing Rebel Assault very soon. And, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I've said it many times when I've, I've covered X-Wing. I am a huge Star Wars EU fan myself. I think it's interesting how... You know, they did pull in, I guess this was a LucasArts game, so it's interesting. So it's not really interesting. It's probably reasonable that they pulled him into the greater Star Wars EU. But uh, but you're right. Was, he was kind of the first guy. He's like, well, this is a really cool guy, and he's kind of a really good fighter, and blah, blah, blah. So we should probably turn him into a Jedi. And that kind of went on with other characters like Kent Hamner, even though Kent Hamner isn't very cool. He's just kind of this cardboard type military guy but the game made him a jedi and just kind of going forward a lot of people would uh suddenly discover they had these latent force powers and you know the star wars eu has its own issues but uh you know i'm a huge fan i'm sitting in my room here i have probably a good hundred or so star wars eu books sitting on uh, on quite a few shelves behind me and the west end game source books and all kinds of stuff like that i love star wars i love the eu and uh I think I was just getting into it. I think 1995 was, I'm not sure if that was the same year that Heir to the Empire came out when kind of the Star Wars EU kicked off or if that was 1992, sorry, can't remember exactly. But I was I was into Star Wars EU at the time of this game and uh, you know, this was just another way to see Star Wars, another way to experience Star Wars, to see part of the universe that wasn't Luke Skywalker and wasn't the Death Star and wasn't Han Solo and blah, blah, blah. And that just kind of led me into seeing how Star Wars was this much bigger universe than just three movies. So thanks again. And finally, we have a voicemail from Mike in Glendale. Hey, Joe, Mike from Glendale here. I wanted to say a uh, great job, as always, on the podcast. I really enjoy listening to them. And also wanted to just drop you a quick note about Dark Forces. And this is a note that would also apply to X-Wing. Uh, both of those games came out when I was in college, I think maybe my freshman year. And I do remember playing both of them and enjoying them very much. But I did have a sense that while they were fun, they also felt in a way like imitations of things that had come before them. Um, Specifically with Dark Forces, uh, I was very aware that this felt very similar to Doom or Doom 2. Now you could jump and duck, and of course they had all the Star Wars elements, but I was a little disappointed that it didn't really seem to change the formula up much. And um, same thing with X-Wing. I felt X-Wing was very Wing Commander-inspired, And in fact, I felt like it was lacking uh, a certain soul that Wing Commander had. So 
that's something that bothered me a little bit at the time. Now, as the years went on, what bothers me about the games now, although I haven't played them in years and I'm sure they're fun and watching you playing them on Twitch uh, brings back fun memories. But the thing that bothers me about them now is that this sort of began the trend of LucasArts moving away from their original intellectual property. I'm thinking Day of the Tentacle, Grim Fandango, uh, Full Throttle, games like that. And then just deciding to shift exclusively to focusing on Star Wars titles. So that's just a little um, sad for me now, thinking back. Um, Of course, that's all history now, but just wanted to let you know that. Okay, thanks a lot, Joe. Keep up the great work. Look forward to each and every episode. Well, thank you, Mike. And, you know, I I won't disagree with you. Now, don't get me wrong. I love LucasArts, and, you know, I I stand by my review of of X-Wing. X-Wing is an incredible game, but, uh, you know, I think I I did play Wing Commander before I played X-Wing, and Wing Commander was definitely a much more, I guess we could call it, cinematic experience. Even the original Wing Commander with, you know, that that wasn't quite as, didn't have quite as many detailed cutscenes as Wing Commander 2 and the obviously the follow-on FMV games. But, you know, X-Wing definitely lacked a certain personality when compared to Wing Commander. But, uh, you know, I loved it for what it was. And X-Wing was really... A simulation of what it would be like to fly an X-Wing or a Y-Wing or an A-Wing or a B-Wing in the Star Wars universe. I mean, the game was much more scripted than Wing Commander. There were the missions were almost like certain missions were almost like a puzzle. There was a certain there were a certain kind of there was a certain sequence of events, certain things that you had to target. You know, Wing Commander didn't need a strategy guide. X-Wing, you, it, it wasn't a bad idea to have it. So it was just a very different kind of game and i think it did do certain things differently and uh you know i'll say the same as dark forces like i said in in the dev story and uh darren stinnett said you know yes the game is a lot like doom they loved doom they played the crap out of doom they loved wolfenstein they played the crap out of wolfenstein so the game was most definitely inspired by by those id games but they also went their own direction in that they they took it in more of the story direction like you know, the, the gameplay section in this podcast is probably one of the shorter shortest ones I've ever done because you're right. It didn't do very much that we haven't already seen. You run around, you jump, you shoot guys. And, uh, you know, in later games, you cut them with a lightsaber and you shoot, uh, you know, you shoot them with your force powers. And there isn't a ton there, but all the cladding that's hung onto that very basic set of gameplay, I find is is something that's truly special. So, Thanks for that great voicemail. Thanks for uh, thanks for watching me on Twitch. I know uh, you're one of the people that uh, that chats with me, or at least you as much as you can while uh, while I'm streaming. And uh, you know, if anyone else wants to watch me, I do post on Twitter and on the Facebook group when I do uh, do those Twitch streams. And uh, great, thank you so much. That's that for the email. Hi, I'm Francisco Ruiz. And together with my good friend Paul Powers and a rotating guest host, we make up the Retro Rewind podcast. Twice a month, we pick a movie or video game from 15 or more years ago and discuss whether it is still worth revisiting today. So if you've thought about rewatching The Rocketeer, playing back through Mega Man X, or you're just a child of the 70s and 80s like us, you should check us out for laughs, for nostalgia, and definitely for our take on what's a classic and what's second class. Find us at RetroRewindPodcast.com, where you can subscribe on iTunes, RSS, and more.
So, moment of truth, does Dark Forces hold up today? Well, you may already know my answer, and this may just be the Star Wars fan in me, but they most certainly do. From the first game to the last game, these are really fun first-person shooters. Maybe they're not groundbreaking in, you know, gameplay. At least Dark Forces, I'd argue that Jedi Knight and the follow-on games are really unique in gameplay with the Force powers and the, the, the lightsaber combat. But, you know, all the games have really great fast-paced action. They run very quickly. They run very smoothly. Uh, the sequels allow us to really feel like X-Wing got us to feel what it was like to be an X-Wing pilot. These games make you feel what it would be like to be a Jedi. You know, these, the stories are, are very complete and very compelling. They develop the character of Kyle Katarn, who gets adopted into official Star Wars canon and expanded universe, like I already talked about. The setting, the music, the sound effects, this is all Star Wars. This is all licensed. This is the real thing. The multiplayer is very, very fun, as I'm sure many of you remember. Uh, now, all that isn't to say that the games aren't without their issues. The levels in the first game can sometimes be very maze-like. I ran around the very simple first level for a very long time until I realized I had simply not gone around a single corner to the end of the level. Uh, I didn't even get through the second level on my research playthrough. Granted, if I wasn't on a deadline to get the show out, I'd have spent more time, but uh, it was getting to the edge of frustrating running around in circles. As for the second game, it's superior in every way, except maybe the cutscenes. Uh, the FMV is fine, but the acting and sets just aren't necessarily all that good looking back. At the time, I remember them being awesome. I remember them being epic. Looking back on them now, a little bit cheesy. But despite these minor quibbles, these are really great games. If you're a classic FPS fan or you're a Star Wars fan in any way, shape, or form, I can't help but recommend these games as must-play. These are the primordial Star Wars FPS games that inspired every Star Wars FPS to follow. Did you enjoy Battlefront? Did you enjoy Republic Commando? Heck, even Old Republic, in some in some aspects, were direct was directly inspired by these games. Try them out. You are listening to the Upper so that's it for another week. We had a nice long show this time. There's a lot to say. I had a lot to say. You guys had a lot to say. Thanks as always to everyone who contributed and special thanks to my dad for helping me paint the house so I'd have some time to get away this week and actually get this show out. Next time, we're going to hit some puzzle, horror, adventure kind of FMV games with the seventh guest. As always, I greatly encourage everyone to send email or audio comments to podcast at umbcast.com. Thanks to Rick Moyer for his great audio work. You can find him over at moyermultimedia.com. Check out the show notes at umbcast.com. Join the Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash umbcast. Lots of interesting stuff going on there. Uh, follow the show on Twitter at twitter.com slash umbshow. Since someone took umbcast from me, and his name's Umberto. Anyways, you can follow me personally, where I post a lot more, at BillyBob476. You can find the show on Steam at steamcommunity.com slash group slash UMBcast, on YouTube at youtube.com slash UMBcast, and, uh, you know, there I've uh, been putting up some partial playthrough videos of, you know, one or more of the games in the series that I cover, having a lot of fun doing those. I just got my internet fixed, so my Twitch streams will be a lot more stable uh, going forward. But that aside, subscribe to the show on iTunes, stream us live at Stitcher Radio, leave me some five-star reviews if you think that I deserve one. I love those. That's that, and we will see you next time for the seventh guest here in the Upper Memory Block.
Battle control terminated. You've been listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast with Joe Mastroianni. For more information on the podcast, visit umbcast.com. That's umbcast.com. Write to Joe today at podcast at umbcast.com. That's podcast at umbcast.com. So what shall it be? Do you join the unity or do you die here? Joy.